the National Archives podcast series, The Truth About the Great Train Robbery of 1963, presented by Peter Guttridge. Hello, I am Peter Guttridge. I'm a crime novelist primarily, but I was a historian by training. And about four or five years ago, I was asked by the National Archive to write a book, this tiny little book, about the Great Train Robbery. It's one of a series called Crime Archive. They did about eight, I think, before um, publishing stopped. It's a short book, but it was supposed to be entirely from the archive collection here. And there is a lot of archive material here that if you laid it end to end, it would be about 12 foot long, the, the number of files that are here about the Great Train Robbery. The problem was that a lot of it wasn't very useful because the Great Train Robbers, unusually in a way, were very close mouthed about what they were going to say. Most of them pleaded not guilty at the trials, which means that the vast range of archives about the trial are pretty much all lies, because they were having to make up things to explain why they weren't doing what they were being accused of doing. So there are volumes and volumes and volumes of stuff which is just made up stuff, so not, that wasn't uh, very useful. So what I had to do was use probably more than most people writing from the National Archive. I, I had to uh, use secondary sources and had to figure out what was true in the secondary sources against what the information I got in the National Archive. It made it a very interesting project, but it made it quite frustrating in many ways. Just to remind of what was going on in 1963, the Profumo affair was the big political scandal, uh, Christine Keeler and all that stuff going on. It was the first Beatles album, Please Please Me. So suddenly mop heads were taking the place of brew cream quiff-headed people in, in the pop world. It was also the year J.F. Kennedy got assassinated. Earlier in the year, he'd made a fool of himself by going to Berlin and not knowing any German had declared, I am a donut. Uh, it was the, the use of Ich bin ein Berliner, ein Berliner. I'm not sure which way around it works. Uh, he also, had, in that year, had transformed, for the worse, the hatting industry in America because he was the first U.S. president to appear without wearing a hat. Uh, and suddenly the millinery uh, business in America went down the hill, and when the mopheads came along, it certainly went down the hill. So it was 1963, a lot was going on. The previous year, uh, the first James Bond movie, Dr. Noah, had just come out. Golfing was going to come out a bit later in this year. But what we had in The Great Train Robbery, it was a robbery of a train which went from Glasgow to London. Some of you may know the documentary film that the GPO made called The Nightmare, which had a little poem by W.H. Auden. It had uh, some uh, classical music playing on it, and it was about a journey going the other way from London up to Glasgow, delivering nightmare. On this particular train, there was £2.6 million in mostly untraceable used notes, worth around somewhere between 40 and £45 million today. People vary on what it's worth. And one particular bank, the Midlands, hadn't insured the cash, so they took a major hit. Everybody else had insured it, so they were all right, of course, as banks often are. It was the largest amount of cash ever taken until 2006, when there was a Secure Cash Depot raid that took up £53 million, far more. The memoirs that I used from the police, which were both here and that I got hold of, were uh, frustrating because the claims that the police made about knowing what was going on should be taken with a large pinch of salt. The autobiographies by some of the robbers and some books 
about the robbery, especially this year, should be taken even more with a pinch of salt because I was shocked to discover that, that professional criminals, they lie as well as stealing and things. You can't trust what they say. It's a terrible thing. The judge in the main trial of most of the robbers openly declared he couldn't figure out who'd done what and so he gave everybody pretty much the same sentence, which was a very severe sentence, 30 years. It was a whopping sentence for what they'd done, and at that time especially. Anyway, let's get started on this. The night train, the travelling post office. Travelling post offices had operated in Britain for 125 years, all around the country, and in all that time have never, ever been robbed. This particular train had 12 carriages altogether, and on 10 of the carriages there were 70 postal workers. On the first carriage, just after the engine, there was a, a, a parcel carriage which was closed, sealed. There was nobody in there. And then next to that, there was a high-value package with five workers on it where all the money was. And this is what they were after. And what would happen was they would be loaded in these bags onto this second carriage down, which was the high-value package. Uh, the reason there were all these money on the train is that English banks that were, had bases in Scotland should carry a certain amount of money in their vaults, but not too much. And so if they had spare money, they would send it regularly down to London. They also had Scottish currency up there, and, and if they got too much English currency, they wanted to get that down to London as well to get rid of that uh, English currency. So they, they were bringing money down on a regular basis. It had just been a bank holiday in Scotland, so there was more money than usual. And it was due to arrive in Euston at 4am on Thursday the 8th of August. Just before it left Glasgow, it's about 6.15, somebody made a phone call south. Who that person was, nobody knows, but it was to let a gang of robbers know that there was about two and a half million pounds on this train heading south. On the way south, the train was going to be collecting ordinary posts in the old-fashioned way, but also stopping off at stations to pick up more money, so the m more money would be added on. So in fact, it wasn't 2.5 million when it started. It was by the time it was due to arrive in Euston. This is the old-fashioned way they used to do it. They used to hang sacks of post from a thing at the side of the rail, and then the train would come along, you'd see the bag of post there, and then the bag of post would get nearer and nearer, and there'd be a little machine. That's how they would do it on the non-stopping uh, stations. But for the money that they were taking down, it was all piled up on stations. The weird thing is, the sacks of money on the stations piled on the platform were heavily guarded by police. They virtually sequestered the stations all around there. You couldn't get anywhere near the stations in the middle of the night until the money was safely on board. Then the police would go away, the train would go on its way. But the astounding thing, which the police were astounded by when they realised it, was that on the actual train, on the high-value packaged carriage on the second one down from the engine, not a single policeman, not a single security guard, there was nobody on that train whose job was to protect that money from being stolen or anything else. Because there'd been no robbery for so many years, they thought it wasn't necessary. The five workers on that particular carriage were all just GPO workers. They weren't professional defenders of money. That wasn't their job. It caused a scandal when it was realised that, in fact, this money was not guarded by anybody once it was on the train. Two and a half million pounds, nearly three million possibly, nobody to guard it. And there was this gang of robbers in London who knew that there was nobody guarding it. Who were they? Well, they were a motley crew. Some were muscled there to intimidate the people they were going to take the money from. Others were small-time crooks brought in just to lug the bags off the train to a lorry that they got to uh, take the money away. 
ironically, the probably the best-known robber, Ronnie Biggs, lasted the longest in, in freedom, was a very, very minor part of the robbery. He wasn't the brains, he, he wasn't particularly the brawn, but he was a very minor character. It's like, ironic that he's become the most famous one just because he managed to survive so long in, in freedom. But he was a minor one. The ringleaders, as best we know, were four people. Bruce Reynolds, who died this year, you probably know. A guy called Charlie Wilson, a guy called Buster Edwards, who you may have seen a movie about him with Phil Collins playing Buster as a good old London Cockney guy. And a guy called Gordon Goody, who's in the news again just now, going to be talking in a documentary later this year about the Great Train Robbery. These were all high-end thieves making quite a good living out of stealing. There was an element of cat burglary, there was jewellery thieving, there was wage snatching, a whole range of things they were doing. But they were doing quite well. Bruce Reynolds lived the high life. He liked to buy sports cars, he liked to move around in the south of France. It's a weird thing because on the police records you get a record of him being in and out of Borstal, but the police records indicate that it, the convictions were for really petty stuff. Now this could be because he hadn't ever been caught for doing the big stuff, but it's weird that he should bother with the petty stuff. Quite near to this actual robbery, he stole from a shop display, he got charged with receiving a stolen heat lamp, and just weeks before the Great Train Robbery, two months before, he'd been fined in Ongar for poaching. Who knew about poaching in those days? So Bruce Reynolds, the, the Cary Grant-like South of France figure, was done for poaching about two months before the Great Train Robbery. He sometimes worked with his brother-in-law, John Daly, and he's going to come back into the story a little bit later. But Bruce had known another guy called Charlie Wilson since childhoods together in Battersea. Charlie Wilson's an interesting character. He lived in Clapham. He'd got a wife and three kids, so he was kind of rooted in Clapham. One of the biographers later on, a guy called Pierre Paul Reed, claimed that he was friends with certain violent and unscrupulous gangsters who ran the protection rackets in the West End. He was referring to the Richardson's gang, not the craze. And that he would blow off the legs or head of an adversary with a sewn-off shotgun without asking why. Now, no one else, and certainly not the police files here, indicate in any way that the Charlie was a vicious kind of guy. Everybody says he's a kind of hell fellow, well met, quite charming, always up for a laugh. This side of him, which Pierce Paul Reed came up with, nobody else hinted at that. And in fact, his longest prison sentence before he got caught for the robbery was 30 months for receiving stolen goods. When he came out from that in 1961, he worked as a window cleaner, a driver, a drinking club owner, then a greengrocer in his dad's business in Penge. Again, this is all from the police files downstairs. Um, according to Reed again, who described Wilson's viciousness, Reynolds and Buster Edwards, third one of this gang, had met at the Shirley Am, which was a club owned by the Richardsons, the, the gangsters. So Buster Edwards... Uh, is the most complex of the robbers because he is portrayed as this cockney cheeky chappy in the film Buster. Uh, he was a former boxer. He was reputed since 1956, in fact, to have been a member of a firm run by a guy called Freddie Foreman, who some of you may know as the craze enforcer, alongside another great train robber, Tommy Wisby, who was definitely kind of muscle and one of the heavies. So Buster was a complex character. Again, in the police files, there's nothing to indicate any kind of level of viciousness. He was just a, a petty criminal in many ways, but Possibly they haven't caught him for the big stuff. He'd done a few jobs with a guy called uh, Gordon Goody. Wage snatchers, stealing from bookies. Most recently with Charlie Wilson, who you've seen earlier involved as well. The first person to write a book about the robbers was a woman called Petta Fordham, who's the wife of a barrister who was involved with the trial. She was a journalist, but she clearly had a crush on Gordon Goody. In 1965, she wrote this book and she said, he's a man of cold courage and sardonic humour, a more than life-size figure with nerves of steel and the wolfish handsomeness of the pack leader that he is. Actually, he lived with his mum in Putney. <laughs> um, 
When he was 15, he'd, he'd been caught poaching and stealing bikes. After Borsley was first jailed and given 12 strokes of the birch for beating up a gay guy, in 1956, he'd been imprisoned in Ireland. He'd had a childhood in Ireland for a failed jewel robbery. In 1961, he was getting a bit heavier. He was fined for firearms and ammunition offences. His given trade was a hairdresser, and he did run a, a small chain of hairdressers, but he did live with his mum. And in fact, a bit like Sean Connery, in fact, he had a tattoo on his arm saying, you know, I love your mother or whatever. So late in 1962, these four, along with another guy called Roy James, Wilson's friend, who was a getaway driver, carried out a heist at London Airport's Comet House. They dressed as city gents to allay suspicion, and then they snatched 62,000, a wage heist. Wilson, Goody and James were pulled in. Wilson and Goody were both charged, but Wilson was acquitted, so Goody was left as the sole man to carry the can for this robbery. He was acquitted after the first trial because he bribed a juror. He claimed he bribed a juror. But he was retried, and because they were wearing these bowler hats and umbrellas for this city gent sort of thing when they were doing the robbery, there was in custody, or as part of the evidence rather, a bowler hat. And he claimed later that he bribed a policeman to go into the evidence room and switch the hats. And so they, they, they put in a hat that was a lot bigger than this bowler hat. Now, later stories, he says it wasn't a bowler hat, it was a tweed hat, but it was a hat. And so when they asked him to say, is this your hat? And he said, no, it's not my hat. And he was asked to put it on in court. The hat was three times too big and it kind of fell down over his ear. So he got acquitted again. That was the claim that he always made. But it probably is true. And the fact about that is that the police were really cheesed off that he got away with it. And they were very keen to get him if he ever did anything else. So he was there. And one of the theories is that the money they made from this robbery, the £62,000, was used as a seed money for the Great Train robbery. One of his lawyers, a guy called Brian Field, he was a corrupt lawyer. Uh, he worked for a, an honest lawyer called John Wheater, but, but Brian Field was a corrupt lawyer. He was a corrupt lawyer, and one of the things he used to do when his particular firm used to deal with wealthy people with big houses, he'd let criminals know that there was some decent stuff in that house there, and he'd let them know when they were away. So he was a corrupt guy. And he is the guy who supposedly brought the idea of the great train robbery to Gordon Goody and to Buster Edwards. He introduced him to a man called the Ulsterman who knew what was happening on the train that was coming down from Glasgow. I'll come back to the Ulsterman, but it's through Brian Field that they got involved and they got very excited and they planned this robbery. So, back to the train, heading off from Glasgow, coming down. Brian Field bought for the robbers a farm, Leatherslave Farm, out near Tem. It's about 27 miles from where the robbery took place. And it was remote, it was not it was near Oakley in Oxfordshire. And for a couple of days before the actual robbery, before the 8th of August, they were holed up there. And they were planning to hold up there a long time after that. They got this phone call from Glasgow, we don't know who it was from, we don't know who actually took the phone call. And these guys set off in a convoy from here in two Land Rovers and one military lorry. They were wearing army gear, kind of boiler suits really, but Bruce Reynolds claimed that he was wearing a SAS uniform. But he was a fantasist, Bruce Reynolds, big time. Nobody really knows how many people were involved. Again, the police files downstairs, the court transcripts downstairs, the GPO files, the railway files, none of them know how many people were involved. At the time, the police thought maybe 15 were on the track, with many more linked to the robbery outside of it. Others have said 17 or 18. We know for certain that 11 were on the track because they got charged with a crime, and there was definitely one more, a guy called John Bailey, who you saw earlier, Bruce Reynolds' brother-in-law, who was never convicted, and I'll come back to him in a moment. So what they were doing, they had two things to achieve to do this robbery. They got to stop the train, 
and they got to isolate the carriage from these 70 workers that were in the rest of the train. And they achieved both aims. They did it here at Sears Crossing, which is where some lights were. What happened was, there was a driver called Jack Mills, who's quite famous because he was injured in this. He was 58 years old. There was a fireman who essentially was a deputy driver called David Whitby. I should point out that at this time, there were still steam trains, but we were moving over to diesel. Electrification was going on on the lines. We're moving over to diesel. So what used to be a fireman who was shoveling the coal into the steam trains was now a fireman, but he didn't have any coal to shovel in the diesels, so he was effectively a kind of spare driver. And that was David Whitby, who was a young guy, he was only 26. At just about 3 o'clock, about 3 or 3 a.m., they slowed the train. They saw an amber light at Leighton Buzzard. The amber light was known as a dwarf light, and it usually indicated what was going on ahead down the line. And the amber was a warning that the next light, which was 1,300 yards away at Sears Crossing, might be red. So they've tried to slow the train down, and if it is red, they've tried to stop. If it's green, they've tried to speed it up again. It was red. So they stopped the train at Sears Crossing. But the way it works is you can see further down the line, the next light, it's, the, it's a, a really good safety system, and you could see that the next light further down was green. And that was really odd, that there should be an amber light there, a red light here, and then a green light. That didn't kind of make sense to Jack Mills, the driver. So he said to Whitby, he said, just get down and phone and see what's going on. So Whitby got down, and he went to use the phone, and the phone was dead. In fact, the robbers had cut all the lines in the whole area, domestic lines and, and any other lines they could find. On his way back to the engine, David Whitby was summoned by a guy on the side of the track and was then bundled down the, the side of the, the embankment and threatened with his life and told to just keep quiet. What then happened with Jack Mills on the footplate has been told in many different ways. The robbers tried to get up, up onto the footplate into the engine and Mills resisted and he got hit. He got hit four times, twice on his head, possibly with an iron pipe, possibly with a cosh and they also had uh, pickaxe handles, so possibly with one of those. Mills and Whitby were handcuffed together but then Mills was unhandcuffed, and although his old days from the fact he'd, he'd kind of been hit on the head rather hard, and he was bleeding quite copiously, after a while they came and un unhandcuffed him and put him back on the train and insisted that he move the train. And I'll explain why that was uh, shortly. This, the first two carriages with the engine had been uncoupled from the rest of the train. So they moved the train forward to a place called Bridego Bridge, which is where they were going to unload all the dosh. And in fact, this is where they find the train the next morning in daylight. So there were five postal workers in the high-value package carriage and they didn't pay much attention when the train halted. Electrification was going on. They were used to trains halting all the time. They didn't even pay much attention when it shunted forward about 150 yards or whatever it was, 250 yards, then stopped again. But then this gang of men in balaclavas and boiler suits forced their way into the carriage. They were carrying pickaxe handles and koshers. One guy with a broad-bladed axe in his hand smashed through the window and came in. They were forced to lie on the floor. They were, they were hit a little bit, not as badly as Jack Mills. Then a system came with the robbers. Two men started stack, stacking the money bags. Three more pulled them down onto the line. There was a whole line of people, apparently, because nobody could see. All the people on the train could only see one little bit of what was going on. Altogether, there were 128 bags on that train, stuffed with fivers, at the time, the five-pound note was changing from a big white one to a, to a newer, smaller blue one, not as small as the ones we have now. And so there were big white ones and smaller ones, and there were pound notes, and there were thousands of pounds worth of the old 10-shilling note, the 10-bob note. They'd given themselves 25 minutes to get all these 128 bags off the train and onto a lorry that they had by the side. 
they managed to get 121 off. They left some on the train, they left the others on the train, and they dropped one on the track. So if, essentially they got away with 120 bags. Quite a lot of money even so. They took the driver and the fireman, they were handcuffed together, they put them on the high-value package carriage with all the, all the post office, the five post office workers, put them down on the floor, and then one of the robbers said, we're, we're going now, if any of you move in the next 30 minutes, we've got somebody outside, it's not going to be good for you. Just stay where you are for 30 minutes. And then they left. They had cut all the phone lines in the area, so it took a while for the alarm to be raised. The robbers then made their way back through these back roads to Leatherslave Farm, and they arrived there at 4.30 in the morning, and they heard on a VHF radio, which they got tuned to the books police, somebody has stolen a train. But how would they stop the train? Very, very simply, bizarrely simply. They had a pair of gloves, and they had two lots of batteries. At the dwarf light, and also at the main light, what they did, they clipped the battery to the amber light at the dwarf light, and they did the same with the red light at CS Crossing to turn on the red light, and both of them had green lights in actuality, and all they did was just put one of the gloves on the dwarf light green light, one of the gloves on the main light green light. It was as simple as that. It was like, you think it's high technology, it was just a glove and a, and a battery pack to stop the train. They brought their own driver. Nobody knows who this driver was. It's thought that, um, that, it, that Biggs might have been a friend of his, and he, he was the one who brought him along. His job was to move the train along to Brideago Bridge, which is where they could get the, the money off the train very easily. But he didn't know how to use the train. He'd, he'd been using a similar train. Again, the, the diesels were fairly new. He'd been using similar trains in the south, at southern railways, but he didn't know how this particular one worked, so that's why they'd had to get Jack Mills, who was all dazed, back onto the train to move the train along because their driver didn't know what he was doing. So they were working to a strict timetable. As I said, they left seven, uh, seven bags in the, in the carriage and, and an eighth on the embankment because they just wanted to get going. On the way back to Leatherslave Farm, they were aware that two cars had passed them. And then either, and it's slightly confusing again from the archives down below and also from the secondary sources, it's slightly confusing. Either coming or going to Leatherslave Farm, an airman hitching a lift back to his camp had seen them. He'd been hitching a lift back to his base and he'd seen them. Whether we were coming or going, nobody's quite sure about that. So the police got called in. The way it worked in those days is that if it was a big crime, especially if it was a murder, though this wasn't a murder, you called in Scotland Yard. You had your local experts, but you called in Scotland Yard. Uh, there's a guy called Malcolm Futrell uh, in nominal charge. But Hathrell sent down one of his men, uh, who was a guy called uh, MacArthur, Chief Superintendent MacArthur. The police had nothing to go on, and they were just puzzled. There were no descriptions. The guys had been wearing balaclavas and, and boiler suits. Five people in the, in the HVB carriage had only seen the people in there. They didn't know what was happening on the line. The two people on the line, who were Mills and uh, Whitby, were face down. They could only see little bits of what was going on on the line. Although Whitby had seen a jeep, so he'd kind of vaguely seen there was a jeep and a lorry at that one side. But they, they had no idea uh, how many people were involved. They had no idea how much money had been stolen even. But it was clearly a big thing. This is how they discovered that the engine and the two first carriages had been separated from the other carriages. The other people in the, in the other carriages didn't know the train had gone. And when the guard realised his first job was to make sure that no train coming after them was going to crash into the remaining ten carriages. So he had to walk nearly a mile down the rail line with red lights and with a kind of detonator thing to prevent anybody else coming down and crashing into the back of the trains. So it took a while for him to get back to the front to find out what had happened to the carriages that had been moved along. So it was a, an embarrassing situation. In the early editions, the amount stolen was put at £1 million. 
The New York Times said, how pallid our own crime syndicates are made to look, how wanting in imagination. And the Herald Tribune in the, in the States said, history's greatest robbery, there'll always be in England. So there was this thing about, it kind of, it synced in with the 60s, the, you know, the Britain in the 60s were becoming this kind of swinging 60s place, and it synced in with that. And, and I think it would have been acclaimed even more had it not been for the injuries done to Jack Mills, who, you know, who's, who's been over the head uh, with an iron bar. But it was very exciting around the world. It was big news. And now they're saying, now the angry questions, Bevins flies in for probe. It made up two and a half million. Almost did. And then they're saying, finally, armed guards on trains. Because it was bizarre that there were no armed guards on this train. So to sort out this robbery of the century, really, there was immediate talk of a mastermind behind the crime. Nobody could imagine that a gang of working class robbers could do a robbery like this without there being somebody with brains, with a good education doing this kind of stuff. A couple of years before, there had been a film called The League of Gentlemen, which some of you may have seen. A wonderful film, fantastic film, where Jack Hawkins and some commissioned officers, they planned this bank robbery using a lot of of ordinary squaddies to, to kind of do the labouring. But, you know, the squaddies couldn't do it on their own. They needed the officers to be able to come up with a plan to do the robbery. And it was the same thing. They kind of thought, no, well, you know, if these are London robbers, because they were already thinking it must be London robbers. If it is London robbers, you know, they must have some mastermind behind it. And it, the idea is a really class thing, really. And, in fact, immediately there was much talk of the press about a mastermind. On the 11th of August, the Sunday Telegraph wrote, of a miser who lives alone in one room in Brighton, this man works with infinite care and patience to come up with criminal plans he then takes to a master criminal well known in the Harrow Road area of London. You can tell that journalists haven't changed much over the years. Uh, in 1965, Petter Ford and the woman who had a crush on Gordon Goody, uh, the journalist's wife of one of the defence barristers, wrote the first book. It was called The Robber's Tale, which I used in, in researching this. I had to kind of throw it away at some point because it was so terribly badly written. For her, the mastermind was an uncrowned intellectual king of the underworld. His plan to rob a mail train was floating about the underworld for years, waiting for someone with the nerve to attempt it. Fordham claimed that if pressed, she could name him. She never did, of course, because she had no idea either who it was. Back in Leatherslave Farm, they were figuring to be there for a good while, for certainly until the weekend. They got supplies enough for that. This is what the police found left in the supply cupboard when they actually got to the farm. And it's kind of a little snapshot of what people would eat in the 60s, you know, baked beans and tins of, uh, tins of tomato soup and, and all kinds of stuff. There were lots of beers in there as well, uh, bottled bottle beers in those days. However, the day before the robbery, a neighbour had seen the army lorry at the farm and then on Thursday, there was a radio broadcast, the, 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 day, you know, the, the, the day of the robbery, which had happened earlier in, on Thursday, which announced the police were interested in this army convoy that the hitchhiking airmen had reported seeing. So the robbers thought, hang on, the farmer saw the lorry. They're saying this hitchhiker has seen this convoy. The farmer's going to put two and two together. But in fact, the farmer didn't actually, but they thought he would. So they thought it's safer to split up the money and to head their separate ways as soon as possible. So they'd intended to stay for until the weekend, but in fact, on the Thursday, the same day as the robbery, really, uh, the, morning, the, the, the day after the robbery in, in the middle of the night, uh, they decided they should start leaving. So they started to clean the house up. They'd all been told to wear gloves. They'd all been told to be really careful about fingerprints. They were told, you know, this has got to be pristine. However, what we're going to do, we're going to get a professional down who is going to clean this out professionally and probably burn the farm down. That was what they all expected to happen. Who, whose job that was, 
became very significant later. Some people say it was Brian Field, the, the crooked solicitor, was supposed to provide somebody. Others say it's Buster Edwards was supposed to provide somebody. There are various versions of who was supposed to get somebody down there to clean up or, or set fire to this farm. That's never been resolved. Again, the archives don't really give anything away. The secondary sources don't give anything. Well, they give alternative stories. So anyway, they cleaned up. They, they wiped in all the surfaces. They burned clothes. They, they couldn't burn the mailbags. The mailbags don't burn very easily. So they buried some, and they hid the rest in the cellar. They left a couple of the vehicles behind. By Friday midnight, the farm had been abandoned. They'd all gone. On Monday, the 12th of August, three days later, this Futrell, the books guy, the book CID guy, They've been thinking about this 30-minute warning, this robber saying, don't move for 30 minutes or it's the worst for you. And they were thinking, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, okay. Maybe they've holed up somewhere 30 minutes away. So they did a perimeter. They figured out how far they could get in 30 minutes. They did a perimeter. Futural later said he wished he'd started on the, out of, on the outward side of the perimeter and moved in rather than gone from the inside and moved out because Leatherslave Farm was pretty much on the outside and he would have found the farm sooner. But anyway, he announced on the Monday that the robbers were holed up somewhere within about 30 miles of the robbery. And that same day, a nosy farm labourer who was looking for work came to Leatherslave Farm and he looked in the shed and he saw the army lorry in the shed. And an attempt had been made to paint it yellow to disguise it, and then they'd abandoned that because the paint wouldn't take on the lorry, so they'd, they'd stopped doing that. The garage was locked, so they couldn't see what was in the lorry. He called the police. He said, I think I know where the lorry is. I think I know where, where they are or where they were. Uh, but that day, on the Monday, the police were inundated with calls because of what Futrell had said about it's within 30 miles. They had 400 calls that day, and they didn't answer his call. So it, he had to wait till the next day, Tuesday the 13th of August, he called again. And two policemen went out. They found the lorry. They found there was a jeep in there. They found all the other stuff. They found the half-buried bags. They found the stuff in the cellar. They found the food. They found a whole load of stuff. The forensics team came in. And over the next 10 days, the forensics team went to work big time. When Futrell got there, he said, this farm is one big clue. The robbers had been concerned. They thought you know, they, they needed to be sure the, the farm had been cleansed and that it was going to be burned down. And they were planning to go back. But then on the way, they discovered that it was too late to go back and burn it down. Um, so they were in the hands of the police and they didn't know what the police might find. They were fairly confident that they'd, they'd cleared it all and nobody could find anything. But you know, as Futrell said, one big clue. So in August, very quickly after the robbery, the rest of August, things began to fall apart. And in fact, by December, most of them were, were in prison. Because it's quite a big bunch of people, I'm not going to be relieved to know, I'm not going to go through how they, each one of them got captured. There's too many. But I, I just want to focus on the kind of main three or uh, four colourful happenings, really. Tuesday the 13th of August. That's a guy called Bill Bowl, who was not a robber, friend of Roger Cordry, who was the man who came up with the glove and the battery. He'd been part of a, a southern gang who'd been stealing petty stuff really off trains going between London and Brighton just by pulling the emergency alarm and then when the guard went came out to see what was going on nicking stuff registered packages from the guard's carriage but he figured out a way to do this thing with the glove and the batteries and his, his mate was Bill Bowl and they'd been the first to leave the farm and the way that they got caught Roger Cordy actually his actual job was that he was a flower seller down in Brighton and they went down to Bournemouth they bought this car and they were trying to rent a garage but unfortunately, they rented a garage from a policeman's widow. And when they tried to pay for it for three months in advance from a thick wadge of cash, she grew suspicious. And they were arrested. And police got back from them 
£141,000 from them and from Cordry's sister. The next one was a guy called Jimmy White. Jimmy White was one of the main guys, actually. He was an ex-paratrooper who worked with Bruce Reynolds before. He bought one of the Land Rovers in the Army lorry for the crime. The other Land Rover had been stolen. White and his wife... And, and their white poodle, which is a bit... When he's trying to be inconspicuous, having a wife and a white poodle is kind of tricky. But they'd gone to Rygate on the 11th of August, and police had asked shopkeepers to be alert for anybody flashing a lot of cash, you know, a lot of £5 notes or £10 notes or £1 notes. And Jimmy and his wife had bought this caravan, mostly with £5 and £1 notes. But then over the next few days, his wife had been going into lots of different shops in Rygate, buying clothes, dresses and all kinds of stuff, uh, for cash. And they'd been noticed. And eventually the police on the 15th of August issued descriptions of a man with a wife and a white poodle. So the police went to his caravan, poor old Jimmy. He'd never been... He was actually on the run already. He was quite a good jewel thief and a safe cracker. He was on the lam for about three years without being caught. But now his luck was running out because they went to his caravan. They missed Jimmy and they missed the wife and the poodle. But they found the caravan. He didn't money in the back of the caravan there. And they find £30,000 of his money hidden behind the panelling. The next thing they find, the same day, was, were three bags of money in Dorking Woods. It was bizarre. £100,900 was found in four bags in Dorking Wood. I love the story about how this was found. It was a man who was giving a female colleague a lift on his motorbike to work. Usually he gave her a lift in his car... But because his car wasn't working, he'd gone on the motorbike. And because it was his motorbike and he wasn't sure about the engine, he'd gone down these minor roads through the Dorking Woods. And his engine had overheated. Frankly, I don't think it was the engine that overheated. <laughs> As they went deeper into the woods, they found these bags. And stuffed down the lining of one of the bags, and this is the saddest thing, was a receipt from a hotel in Germany um, with the name Field on it, Brian Field, a crooked solicitor whose wife was German. The receipt was down the side of the thing. So they went to him, and they didn't arrest him straight away, actually. But they couldn't find it because they couldn't find anything at his house. So they, they got that money. Nobody really knows why the money was left in the wood. It could be that Phil panicked and thought, I'm about to get caught here, let me at least get rid of the money, but didn't bother to check for his receipt from the hotel. Very sad. I mean, they'd done, it, they'd done the, the robbery so magnificently, but in fact, the, what then followed was almost Keystone Cops, really. On the 21st of August, the fingerprint results from Leatherslave Farm came through. The robbers weren't expecting there to be any fingerprints, but they were, or probably were. Uh, we'll go back to police corruption a bit later on. The first person who was identified by his fingerprints was Charlie Wilson. There were partial prints on a salt cellar, which he'd used. They sent out that evening on the 22nd at 1.36 in the morning, wanted telegrams for him, Roy James, whose fingerprints they found, and Bruce Reynolds. Charlie was arrested that day at home. The other two nipped off, as you know. Roy James, the escape driver, usually went off, and Bruce Reynolds went off. And then Gordon Goody, who is my favourite character in all this story, was arrested that day in really odd circumstances. He won two pairs of gloves. He was probably the most professional of these robbers. He'd stayed away from home, from his mother's house in Putney, and he was staying in the back room of a pub in Blackfriars. On the 16th of August, the police had illegally searched his mum's house. They'd said to his mum, oh, we've got a search warrant. They haven't really, and they searched his house, found nothing. 
He'd actually written to Scotland Yard because he knew they were going to be after him for that thing he got away with, the city robbery with a bowler hat. He'd written and said, look, I know you're going to be suspecting me, but because I spent a fortune defending myself against the airport charges, I'm going to lie low until the great train robbery gang is caught because I don't want to go through the same old deal again. That letter is downstairs in the archive. But on the 22nd of August, the day that the photos of Reynolds and Wilson and the others were published saying, these are the people we want, he went to Leicester to stay with a girlfriend. And he was wearing glasses. And ironically, he checked into this hotel and the receptionist, because he was wearing glasses, thought he was Bruce Reynolds. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances, you know? And she called the police. And he got arrested because they thought he was Bruce Reynolds and they'd been looking for Gordon Goody, but they didn't know where he was. On him, he had a £5 note and a 10 shilling note, both of which he borrowed from his girlfriend. He didn't have any cash from the robbery with him at all. He was so mistrustful of the police because he knew they might want to fit him up that he insisted they write down the numbers of these notes um, so they couldn't substitute train robbery money that they've recovered in, the, in Dorking Woods and elsewhere so that they couldn't say, oh, we're finding with money on him. He was a very canny guy. The arrest gave the police the freedom to search the room in the pub that he'd been at. Now, remember the yellow paint back at the farm? He'd been really careful. They took away a pair of shoes claiming on, on the shoes was some yellow paint. I don't think there was any yellow paint. I think they fitted him up. Eventually, they came back and said, yeah, it's the same paint that was used at the farm, and so they arrested him. He was guilty. Of the, he was definitely a, a robber, but they definitely fitted him up for the crime, I think. At the time, it was inconceivable to think that anyone would do that. You know, on the telly, we're watching Dixon and Doc Green. You know, that's what we thought about policemen. But in fact, there was a lot going on. And later, in the flying squad and the Metropolitan Police, particularly between 1972 and 1976, a lot of long-serving officers who would have been around in the early 60s, 440 officers were sacked or were allowed to leave charged with disciplinary offences or criminal acts. So there was a lot of corruption around. So I'm fairly confident that he was fitted up. Again, there's nothing in the archives downstairs, unfortunately, to say that. Ronnie Biggs had got prints on the Monopoly game and on the bottle of ketchup, so he was on the run. Reynolds, too, had print on the ketchup. Obviously, this tomato ketchup was their favourite little thing, little condiment, whilst they were there. John Daly, who was the brother-in-law of uh, Bruce Reynolds, he'd been hiding in Eaton Square. If you know London, you'll know Eaton Square is the most expensive square in London. He'd been renting a flat in Eaton Square, where a working-class lad from Battersea got the money from, we can only guess, because he was a great train robber. But he'd been doing the, the city gen thing, bowler hat, umbrella, he'd grown a beard, lost a lot of weight. Somebody must have took the police off. They went and got him, and they arrested him in December. And then on the 10th of December, they got Roy James, uh, who was this guy. He could have made a career as a racing driver, Roy James. Well into racing, he'd been film winning races, but he was also drawn to crime and he'd been a, a cat burglar and a whole range of things. They missed him in August. They were tipped off. He was in a flat in St. John's Wood. When they knocked on the front door, he went out the back, over the rooftops. He had a holdall with £12,000 in it. He dropped 30 feet into a garden, broke his ankle. You think he should have got away? Police were waiting for him. So he didn't get away. He got caught. That same night... Somebody phoned the police and said, there's something of interest in Southwark Telephone Box. And they found two um, potato sacks full of money that they'd left. £47,000 in there. Nobody knows why it was left. There they are looking at that money in the potato sacks. It was a very weird thing. So by the end of December, of the known train robbers, only Bruce Reynolds, Bus Redwoods and Jimmy White were still on the run. The rest were in prison. And then they were put on trial between January and 17th of April. As I say, the trial transcripts downstairs are voluminous, but they're not very useful because everybody but one person pleaded not guilty 
And so they all told lies. There were some funny lies because they had to explain how their fingerprints were found in this farm without admitting that they were there or they'd been robbers. So there's some very funny stuff in there, but it wasn't actually used for the narrative I was, I was trying to tell in this rather uh, short book. So the trial went on for quite a long time, and the first person to be acquitted was John Daly. They found fingerprints on the Monopoly set of him, and he said, well, yeah, I've used that Monopoly set, but in London. I was never there. I think it belonged to Bruce Reynolds. And, and so they acquitted him. They didn't acquit other people who found their fingerprints because they got fingerprints on other things as well. But John Daly got acquitted. So he was the one guy who actually got away, having been arrested, he got away with the crime because it's almost certain that he was one of the robbers on the line. And he got away with his money and, and without being put in prison. He was the only one who actually got away. Roger uh, Cordry, who was the first one uh, caught with Bill Bowl, he pleaded guilty. He was the only one who pleaded guilty. Everybody else pleaded not guilty. About half of them didn't agree to give evidence. Charlie Wilson spoke about six words. He wouldn't say anything. Gordon Goody gave evidence, and the judge was very impressed with him. Uh, again, what he says about Gordon Goody and what Gordon Goody says, you can find downstairs. The judge summed up for seven days before he gave his judgment. There was one who was totally innocent, and that was the solicitor John Wheater, who I've not really mentioned before. He was Brian Field, the crooked solicitor's boss, and he got involved in buying Leather Slave Farm. That was his only involvement. He was totally innocent, as far as I can tell. But because the judge didn't really know what had gone on, he got put in prison probably totally falsely, which is a shame. The one who was also not guilty of the crime, though he was guilty of being friends with Roger Cordry, was Bill Bowl. Now, his problem was, because everybody had pleaded not guilty, nobody was going to say, no, Bill wasn't on the line, because they couldn't admit they were on the line themselves. So Roger Cordry could say it, because he pleaded guilty, but nobody else could. So the judge didn't believe what, uh, what he said. The judge did extend to Bill Bowl some measure of mercy, because of Bill's age. He was 50, which these days seems nothing, but back in then he was obviously an old guy. We're going to give him some mercy, and because he didn't believe he was much involved. So his mercy took the form, the judge's mercy took the form of concurrent sentences of 21 and 24 years. <laughs> Ridiculous. It was reduced on appeal eventually to 14 years, but the guy hadn't actually done anything. Everyone else got pretty much 30 years, which is just astounding. There were no guns involved. There was violence, but there were no guns involved. So anyway, there was a guy called Tommy Butler took over the inquiry, and Charlie Wilson escaped famously from the jail with a, a really simple escape. Ronnie Biggs also escaped over the wall of, of Wandsworth. At the same time, Jimmy White and Buster Edwards gave up. Jimmy White hadn't had a very good time at all. Uh, he, apart from losing his money in the caravan, people had nicked money. So a couple of guys claiming to be from the flying squad had taken a briefcase from his flat containing £12,000 when they turned up at his flat to question him. He gave himself up. He got bored. He gave the police £7,000 back and got a, a smaller sentence. Buster Edwards is meant to have a plastic surgery. He looks just the same to me, except with glasses and a, a bit thinner and not smiling so much. He'd been persuaded by Bruce Reynolds to go to Mexico, but he didn't like Mexico. He didn't like the food, didn't like the beer, didn't like the music, didn't like the heat, so he came back. And either he gave himself up or Tommy Butler, this guy, found him. Again, the, uh, different versions say different things. Tommy Butler didn't give up on anybody. Again, he was another guy who lived at home with his mum. He just lived for his job, and he just persevered till he was going to get all these people. The next person he got was Charlie Wilson, who moved to Quebec. And Tommy Butler turned up one morning at his house with a gang of Mounties with him. Can you imagine that? I love the idea of that. Bruce Reynolds was still on the run. This is various passport photographs of Bruce Reynolds on the run. He was first in a series of London flats. Again, one of those got burgled by other crooks, nicking money from him. He went to France, Belgium, Germany, Mexico, Canada, the US. Eventually, he came back to Torquay. And this is where... <laughs> I know, I know. This is where Tommy Butler found him, in Torquay. He was arrested. He got 25 years because they thought that he was the ringleader. So... 
Eventually, in 75, seven of them were paroled. Not the ones who'd just been put in prison, but the seven were paroled. Ronnie Biggs, of course, is still on the run, living theoretically a really nice life. Not really. And then the seven who'd been arrested, Ronnie and the people who were in prison, gave permission for a book to come out called The Train Robbers by P.S. Paul Reed, which was meant to be the true story. It would answer the questions as yet unanswered. It didn't. It, there was a, a mastermind theory which had been going around before, and they came up with the selling point of the book was that there wasn't a mastermind, there was a financier of the robbery who put up £80,000 to plan and carry out the robbery in return for £1 million. And this mastermind was a guy called Otto Skorzeny, who was an, a Waffen-SS commander during World War II who'd carried out the spectacular rescue of Mussolini from Gran Sasso in, during the war. And obviously they just kind of picked his... And like, Who can we get that's going to be really interesting to say who's behind it? And they came up with this guy. And everybody fell for it. And so, again, there's nothing in the archive about this because it's so ludicrous. And in this account, one of Scorsese's men, a guy called Siggy, was at the farm. His men brought Charlie Wilson out of prison, got Buster Edwards out and did the plastic surgery on him. It was ridiculous. If there was a mastermind, we, we don't know who it was. For a while, there was a rumour you probably know that it was Bernie Ecclestone because of the link with Roy James. It was that, the Independent asked him in 2005, and he said, no, nah, there wasn't enough money on the train. I could have done something better than that. <laughs> the rumour came from the fact that Roy James was the racing driver, and Eccleston at the time owned Brabham, and, and that was James's favourite car. And when he came out of prison, he asked Eccleston for a job, and Eccleston didn't want to give him a job, but he invited him to make a trophy because he trained as a silversmith whilst he was in prison at Roy James. Weirdly, I've just done some talks on a cruise ship and I met a guy who'd gone to school with Roy James and was a silversmith with him. How he could afford to be on the cruise, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> what happened to them all? Well, Roger Cordry went back to selling flowers. Tommy Wisby bought a pub. Jimmy Hussey bought a car dealership. But Jimmy and Tommy went back in prison because they were dealing cocaine for a while. Bus Redwoods ran a flower store on Waterloo Bridge. Some of you may have bought flowers from him. There was the film in 1987. In 1994, he hung himself, said because he was bored with the life. I've heard darker rumours about why he hung himself. Who were the others? Uh, Jimmy White started doing painting and decorating. Roy James, as I say, went into silversmithing. But then he did a VAT scan with Charlie Wilson. And then in 1993, he was put in prison for shooting his father-in-law and pistol-whipping his wife. And then he had a heart attack, and then he eventually died in 1997. Bruce Reynolds, I actually met a couple of times on the, on the literature festival circuit. He wrote his quite an acclaimed autobiography, totally made up. Well, not totally, but a lot of it made up. But he was very popular. He was surrounded by heavies who were fans of his. And as you know, he, he sadly died this year. Charlie Wilson... He did the VAT scan with Roy James. He moved to Marbella, where he probably was involved in cocaine and cannabis smuggling from North Africa because he was the victim of a hit in his apartment. Some guy called, called on him and his wife. He took him through the back. Uh, his wife heard a groan as Charlie was apparently kicked between the legs, and then Charlie got shot twice, once in the head and once in the chest, and he was killed. Nobody knows who, who did it. Ronnie goes on and on. Tommy Butler, who'd been pursuing him, all of them, he died in 1970, sadly, on the day that the sun started serialising uh, Biggs' life story. There were those who got away. We don't know who they are, but there were certainly a couple who got away. P.S. Paul Reed talks of a Bill Jennings, of Alf Thomas, of Frank Monroe. And then there was this guy called the Ulsterman, who might be the guy who made the phone call from Glasgow to say that train was leaving with the money and is the person who brought to Brian Field and Gordon Goody the idea of a, of a robbery of a train with all this money on, told them that there was money on this train. Good and Goody has not really been part of any of the, of the, 
lies that the, the different robbers have fabricated. And he's apparently in a documentary which is coming out later this year, so I don't know who he's going to name, because it's not in the archives downstairs, that's for certain, says that he's going to reveal the identity of the Ulsterman. I'm not sure there was an Ulsterman. I think it was probably, well, I think there was. It was probably a post office worker who knew what was going on, but I don't think it's anybody kind of particularly famous. But we'll wait to see what happens. He, he now lives in Spain. He ran, a, he ran a bar there for years. I don't know if he's going to explain what happened to the rest of the money, because only... One-seventh of the money was ever recovered. All of the robbers said, oh, yeah, well, people stole it and lawyers' fees and all that. And it's probably true. I mean, people did steal from them. Lawyers' fees were high. They were all using very expensive barristers. But there's still a lot of money left over. So it's hard to know what did happen to the rest of the money. A lot of it was stolen by, by family friends. Goody buried a lot of his, and so that's how he managed to keep some, although he claims he didn't keep it, that you know, he lost it when he buried it. The question still outstanding is, of course, who hit Jack Mills? In the robber's book, uh, Buster Edwards said that he'd hit him, but later Bruce Rennell said no, he didn't. He just said that because part of the book deal was that they needed to say who'd hit Jack Mills. So Bruce said, uh, Buster said, OK, well, I'll say I did it. Uh, Bruce Rennell said it was somebody who got away with the crime who did it. Jim Hussey, on his deathbed, uh, either this year or last year, I've forgotten, claimed that he did it. He was one of the heavies, but whether that's true or not, um, I don't know. And, yeah, so driver Jack Mills, he was certainly hit very badly. And the, the whole narrative with Jack was that it shattered his nerves, his health, his life. And, indeed, you know, we know that post-traumatic stress can have a terrible effect on people. And the further opinion of that is that he was treated shamefully by the British Railways Board. Downstairs in the files, there are some very interesting documents from the British Railways Board about Jack Mills. And my conclusion from that is that, in fact, the British Railways Board treated him as well as they possibly could and that what they knew and that he didn't know is that when he was off sick a lot after the after the robbery he'd actually been off sick a lot before the robbery because he actually had leukemia he eventually died of leukemia but he had leukemia at the time of the robbery and obviously that might have been made worse by what happened to him of course but apparently according to a, a memo that's downstairs the criticisms are well meant but uninformed and we could only satisfactorily answer them by revealing that Mr Mills is not absent because of the accident but because of an incurable disease which we do not think he knows he has. This is unthinkable and I recommend that we make no reply. And out of respect for, for Jack Mills, the board didn't help in the filming of Buster and the locomotive and the carriages, they didn't preserve them particularly, although one of them is still preserved, but they didn't keep the locomotive. They didn't try and make anything out of the, the glamour of the great train robbery out of respect for Jack Mills, which I think is, is good for them. However, there's another person that I want to end with who we tend to forget about, which is David Whitby, who was the fireman, the second driver, who was 26 when it happened. He didn't get beaten up as badly as Jack Mills, but he got, he got roughed up and, and treated very badly by the robbers. And he died of a heart attack at the age of 34, eight years after he was bundled down that embankment. He died of a heart attack, and he tends to be the forgotten man or the forgotten victim in the Great Train Robbery. This talk was recorded on the 6th of August 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.